This podcast is sponsored by JP Morgan Investment Trusts, offering innovative investment options for your stocks and shares ISA. Hello, welcome to the CityWire Funds Fanatic podcast. My name is Gavin Lumsden, and uh, this week I'm joined by Craig Baker, Global Chief Investment Officer of Willis Towers Watson, uh, who's also chairman, crucially, of the Alliance Trust Investment Committee. Now, Alliance Trust is a uh, multi-manager global investment trust, £2.8 billion of uh, market value, uh, launched way back in 1888. So, uh, Craig, really good of you to to join me. Um, Your job is um, overseeing the external fund managers to appoint the best fund managers you can find and hope that they pick the best shares they can find. Is that putting it in a nutshell what you do? Yeah, hi, Gavin. That's absolutely um, what we do. And then also think about risk management in terms of uh, how we balance the, the portfolio between those managers. Absolutely. Well, that's why you're such an uh, uh, interesting person to talk to at this point of the year, the ISA season, when people are you know, looking at their uh, their holdings and where they might put money and put money aside for the year ahead. Um, but, you know, to look ahead, let's look backwards a little bit. Last year, 2020, you know, terrible, dramatic, uh, devastating year in so many ways. Uh, stock markets hit and then rebounding. Um, I suppose one of the great challenges now is to decide, you know, what are the long lasting changes from the pandemic? What do you think will be the long term effects? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I mean, I think as we look out, we think there are probably three big themes that we'd be focusing on at the moment. And some of those are things um, caused by the pandemic. Some of those are things just accelerated uh, by the pandemic. Uh, and probably th- those three things in order, I would say, firstly, um, is after many, many years of falling interest rates, um, we've possibly got the threat of inflation for um, the first time in many people's careers or uh, or lives in, in many cases. Uh, so that's, that's an interesting one, given the amount of stimulus that's had to be pumped into um, uh, the economy uh, following uh, COVID. Um, and of course, um, whether it was caused by COVID or not, changes in administration in various countries as well, looking at uh, the world differently in terms of how they're going to uh, spend on stimulus. Uh, the second thing really is just the uh, rise of China uh, as a global superpower, but also uh, as a power in the stock market and wider uh, across other asset classes outside of equities. And so that's that, that's a big theme uh, for portfolios over the long term. And then the third one really is just the rise of ESG. And that that, that was happening pre-COVID, but I think it made a number of um, corporates around the world recognise their duty to multiple stakeholders, not just shareholders. Uh, so thinking uh, about obviously clients and employees as well, but also wider society uh, that was really highlighted by COVID and uh, the planet, so climate change uh, and the like. And so ESG really has accelerated as a, as a key theme, uh, both from a pure financial perspective, but also from an interest from investors' perspective. Well, that's a great answer. A lot in there. We'll, we'll definitely pick up on China and ESG in, in a bit. But just uh, on the inflation point, are you actually really concerned about uh, inflation? Because there seems to, you know, people do counter that by saying there's still a lot of deflationary sort of forces at work. Um, do you actually fear, you know, a big uh, increase in inflation or is it more just a, a, a messy transition as we you know, go to slightly higher inflation? What, what, what is exactly is it? There. Yeah, I mean, our central expectation is not that we're suddenly going to get um, significant 
inflation. But there's clearly a risk of that. And I think one of the ways that we've structured Alliance Trust uh, and why we think it's particularly useful in the current environment is that we've ensured that um, big macro factors like that, big country biases, big industry sector biases are pretty much taken out of it. It looks quite similar to um, the equity market at large from the big top-down perspective and looks very different from a stock selection perspective. And so we ensure that stock selection uh, is going to be the primary driver of returns so that we're not going to get hurt if there is a change in some of those big macro uh, events. OK, now, like many last year, you, you, you were caught out by the surge in Internet stocks. Um, your annual show were positive, but uh, you weren't in the areas that were really flying. Um, but we've seen quite a sharp sell off in uh, in tech stocks recently, although that may have stabilised. Uh, what are your thoughts on technology valuations now? <laughs> Yeah, so um, you're right in that we um, had a tough 2020 uh, relative to um, the MSCI All Country World Index benchmark, which was fascinating because in 2020, um, about 45% of the return from the entire MSCI All Country World Index, which has got thousands of stocks in it, came from just five companies, uh, which is uh, extraordinary, really. Um, Those are the now we stocks. Were, that's the fang stocks, yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And now and, we uh, were Apple, your, your, your results. Sorry, uh, just to, but your, your results showed that Apple uh, accounted for 17 percent of that return. So, you know, really uh, heavily dominated by by that company. And if you don't hold Apple, then you were, you know, got a problem, really. didn't you? That's right. So we had nothing in Apple um, and Apple uh, had a great return. As you say, it, it, it made up 17 percent of the return on that entire index uh, during the year. Now, we weren't. Uh, underweight all of the FANG stocks. You know, we were overweight Alphabet. Um, and uh, overall across the FANGs, we were slightly underweight, but not massively. Again, as I said earlier, we don't take big sector positions. And normally that would have very little impact. It was just such an extraordinary year that it did have quite a big impact, even being slightly underweight in some of those uh, areas. Obviously, we've now seen a reversal, as you say, in some of that in 2021 already. And actually, we've made back a very large proportion of the underperformance in 2020 already, just in the first couple of months uh, of of this year, uh, and so we're now comfortably ahead of benchmark since uh, since inception. Um, but again, that's really been driven by the stock selection piece. I mean, it you know there are clearly pockets of the stock market that we think think look pretty expensive and have seen some bubble like uh, mania, um, but we wouldn't be saying that's true across. Um, the market as a whole necessarily, and, and not necessarily across some of the fans. I mean, some of those are uh, not like technology uh, bursts in the past where it was unprofitable companies uh, and the like. Um, some of these are, are well-established, high-quality companies. And we need to recognise that um, technology is an important um, consideration across every industry. This isn't just a technology sector versus non-technology sector uh, I mean, classic one being Amazon, which is a retail stock, but clearly driven by technology. Yeah. OK. Um, you invest, as I said, through uh, external managers. There's about there's, there's actually 10 uh, fund managers on your panel. Um, so you're looking at world markets in a sort of similar way to private investors. You know, they've also picking fund managers. Of course, they could come to you as a kind of one stop shop, I guess. But um, um, 
but you, as you said, you've been um, you referred to the inception. Um, you took over the portfolio uh, in April 2017, and um, yeah, last year there was a bit of underperformance because of the the the, the tech dominance you've just been talking about, and you, it sounds like you're catching that up. Uh, more recently, but if you look at the, the results, showed that um, since April 2017, you know you, you, you've done a pretty good job. You're not doing a bad job. Your, your performance is in line, is how you described it, with that uh, MSCI World Index. Um, so uh, obviously, you'd prefer to, to beat it, presumably. I mean, in line's not too bad, but uh, outperformance would be better. Yeah, absolutely. So that was to the end of December 2020. Uh, from inception, we were about in line with uh, the benchmark. We're actually uh, comfortably ahead of it now, as I say, because we've had a, a good start to 2021. Um, but, you know, if you take that period to the end of 2020, the, the average stock had massively underperformed, um, uh, particularly in 2020, but actually in 2019 and 2018 as well. Um, and with that backdrop, it was actually a pretty tough period for uh, active managers to beat that index. That index was um, very much dominated by a small number of companies that, that actually drove um, the stock market at large. And so it was about the toughest um, index to beat uh, over that period of time. That was less true in 2017. We outperformed quite considerably in 2017. It's been less true in 2021, and we've outperformed quite considerably so far in 2021. So if we get any kind of um, neutralization of that um, that that um, leadership from a small number of companies, uh, let alone a reversal of it, um, then the, the trust is incredibly well positioned. But as I say, as of today, we're now sitting comfortably ahead of the, uh, the passive uh, equivalent. Okay, well, that sort of asks, uh, answers my, uh, my next question, which was that, uh, you know, what would you say to investors who, you know, turn around and say, yeah, okay, that's okay. You know, it's a difficult job investing and choosing good fund managers, but uh, I could have done as well in a tracker fund as, as, as put my money with you. Well, you're now outperforming that index, but you, you take the point, you know, active fund managers are constantly being challenged to, to beat uh, index um, benchmarks because, you know, it is possible just to put your money in an index tracker and, uh, and, and try and get most of that performance for uh, for a cheaper for cheaper fees. Um, yeah, what, what, what is your response to uh, the kind of challenge from passive trackers, and uh, what what keeps your faith alive in active stock pickers? Yeah, and and it's a a really important point because I I, I think that um, you know passive approaches are is in normal conditions, a, a pretty sensible approach. We think that we can add considerable value to that over the long term. Um, but actually, interestingly, as we sit today, we would posit that a passive approach is actually potentially more risky um, than the active approach that's in the Alliance Trust portfolio. And, and I'd, I'd bring out two reasons for that. The first is just the amount of concentration there is in the index. Uh, we talked about the fact that 54, or sorry, 45% of the return in 2020 came from just five companies. Um, the whole idea of the passive approach is that um, you're trying to spread it across thousands of companies and uh, you're not going to be dominated by one or two, but that's not true. The, the S&P 500 in the US is now made up 22% of the market cap of that is from five companies. And that's the most concentrated it's ever been in history. And so that's one issue um, that we don't have that level of concentration uh, in Alliance Trust. And of course, the managers can re uh, reduce their exposure to those mega cap companies should they think that the 
uh, um, the, the, the valuations look stretched. And then the second reason I would point out is that the passive index has actually got quite a significant um, climate risk attached to it. And so if you actually look at the carbon metrics on the portfolio, uh, there are a number of legacy large companies that make up that index that have got significant climate risk attached to them. Um, when we look at the um, carbon metrics on the Alliance Trust portfolio, we're considerably lower risk than um, the market cap index. And so when you take that concentration risk and climate risk together, uh, we actually think now's a, a very good time to be investing the way Alliance Trust is. Um, not only do we think it can produce added value, and it has done since inception, uh, but also it can do so uh, potentially with lower risk. Okay, well, should we should we talk about, you mentioned ESG uh, twice now. ESG, for those who don't know, is a acronym for an environment, uh, society and, and, and governance. So we're covering a lot of uh, territory. But um, you, you mentioned um, you, you, you've done some analysis. You do analysis of where the portfolios, it's, it's carbon exposure, it's climate risk uh, exposures. And there's some interesting figures in the annual report. Um, I just, I just, could you just tell us a bit more about how you work out what the uh, carbon emissions are of Alliance Trust? Are you looking at the all the underlying companies? Because your 10 managers are generally picking 20 best stocks that they can find. So that gives you a portfolio of about 200 stocks. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Um, so, yes, we, we basically get um, the analytics on all the companies that we're owning. Um, and uh, we get that from external data providers. So uh, in this case, the, the ones we're talking about there are from MSCI, who um, can actually, for every company, tell you the carbon metrics. So it will be um, the total emissions. It will be um, uh, it will be also um, carbon intensity of the portfolio. And then you can look at that versus the MSCI All Country World Index benchmark and see um, how carbon intensive your portfolio is relative to the benchmark. And so that gives you a feel for if there was an effective increase in carbon tax, for example, um, uh, as regulators uh, try to um, uh, come good on the pledges that various governments around the world have made to be net zero by 2050 or 2060 in the case of China. Um, uh, if you get that, um, then those portfolios that are uh, lower carbon intensity are likely on uh, on average um, to suffer a bit less from uh, the impact of that from a financial perspective. But you know that's only one way of looking at it. That that's a snapshot of what the carbon intensity of the portfolio is today. What you care about as well is the trajectory. And so you're looking at um, what path to net zero are each of the companies on. And you can look at their TCFD, the uh, Task Force for Climate Related Financial Disclosures. You can look at their financial disclosures. You can talk to the uh, the companies about what they're doing. Um, and so it's that trajectory. And it's also understanding how much ability that company has to pass on uh, the impact of a change in uh, carbon tax effectively to its consumer, because um, if it can pass it on to the consumer, it doesn't necessarily hit the share price as much. It obviously hits the consumer, but uh, not necessarily the, the, the owners of that. And so it's all of that kind of thing that, that the managers are trying to take into account. It's one of the advantages of an active approach, but only if your managers are really embedding ESG thinking into what they do. So a big part of what we do is evaluate how strong the managers that we're 
using the stock pickers in the portfolio, how strong they are at embedding this thinking into uh, valuing the companies they're looking at. Um, and so when you're look, thanks, Sir Craig, and when you're you know looking at the fund managers and what they're doing, and you know ESG, as I say, is a very there's three big topics within that. You know, uh, do they have to score highly on each for you to uh, employ them? They do. Um, so we we think all of those factors are important, and we think you know they're important for financial reasons. Uh, we we think that um, over the long term, companies that um, are doing well on all of those factors are on average going to uh, have that reflected uh, in their share price. Um, and so uh, we look across the piece. We think that uh, climate change is the one that we put the most weight on, probably put about 50% of our weight uh, to climate change within that. Uh, and the reason for that is, is um uh, threefold, really. The first is that it's probably the easiest to model of of uh, of all the the factors. They're quite difficult to understand, whereas you can actually look at the carbon metrics on the portfolio. Um, the the second is that there's more of a catalyst in that area as to why these are going to get priced into the stock market um, over the short to medium term, and you can see that from governments signing up to the Paris Accord and the pressure that's being put on corporates from a regulatory angle and a shareholder angle. And the third one is, is clearly there's more reputation risk uh, in that space as well at the moment. It's, it's, it's big on regulators' uh, discussions. It's big on shareholders' discussions. And so for those three reasons, we think it's probably going to have the most financial impact uh, over the next few years. And so that's that's where we put a bit more weight, but all of those ESG factors are important. And it's partly why we've employed EOS at Federated Hermes on behalf of the trust to go in and engage with each of the companies that we own in the trust um, to try and improve what they're doing on each of the, um, uh, the factors within ES and G. Okay, and the EOS and Hermes, are they, are they helping you... Um... You know, assess the quality of the data because I hear you know there's a lot of interest in ESG. It's clearly important, but uh, you hear a lot of investors or other fund managers sort of querying the value of some of the data that's out there, some of the data providers. You know that like you know apples and pears are, are being compared. It's not always like for like. And um, yeah, are you confident that the you know positive data scores you're getting in the annual reports on on sort of carbon emissions and that sort of thing? Um, you know that they are that what you're seeing is really real so um it's the same in every part of investment is that the data gives you some useful information for asking questions it doesn't always give you the um the exact answer and so it should be part of the process not the only process that said i would say there are four things i would i would highlight in this area the first is that um we did a, a full review of all the uh, data providers out there before we um, alighted on um, the, the information that we get from MSCI that goes uh, across the piece and includes the carbon delta metrics. Secondly, um, we've got uh, a lot of our own expertise within Willis Towers Watson, particularly on the climate side. So we've recently acquired Acclimatize, which is one of the world's leading uh, physical um, climate risk uh, analytics specialist, and we've recently brought in the energy finance team from the Climate Policy Initiative, um, which is uh, one of the leading uh, players in transition climate risk uh, analytics as well. So we've got our own tools that we can apply to this. Thirdly, we've then got the 
um, the, the stock pickers and we're relying on them to be asking qualitative questions of um, the boards of the companies they're investing in to understand what they're doing uh, in this space more than just the published uh, data. And finally, we've got EOS, uh, Federated Hermes, as you alluded to, um, that are actually leading on a number of the Climate Action 100 initiatives with some of the world's largest carbon emitters, as an example. Uh, again, we keep using climate change as an example. Uh, it's not because it's the only thing we're focusing on. It's just one of the easier ones to, to use as that example. OK, and it's clearly there's a lot of work in progress, but the report highlights a comment from the trust chairman that, um, that, that there is active consideration to you know, excluding certain types of companies. What, what, what are we talking about? We're talking about coal companies or companies using coal or is it? I mean, that's classic. That's a, a well-known sort of exclusion. But are there um, an alliance trust avoids weapons manufacturers, I think. But uh, is that the present? Is that what you can exclude at the moment? And what other things might be excluded in the future? What's under consideration? Yeah, so you're right. At the moment, the only exclusion um, that's in there is controversial weapons. But um, we continually um, look at whether we need uh, additional exclusions in the trust. Um, our starting point is that we put engagement as a better approach than exclusions. Um, ultimately, by excluding something, um, you're not necessarily making positive change per se. You're, you're passing on the rights in that company to someone else. It, it doesn't change too much in itself. Um, and by engagement, you can actually not only make positive change, but also benefit from that positive change from a financial perspective. And so that's our preference. And that's why we both pick managers that we think are strong on engagement, but also have EOS as a uh, an engagement specialist uh, on top of that as well. Um, but what we're looking at is, are there areas of the market where engagement's not really going to work very well? And, and if that's the case, then exclusions might become important. So you, you rightly point out things like thermal coal as an example that people have gone to. It's quite difficult to know how you engage with a thermal coal plant on what they should do to make things better. I mean, shutting down is an obvious thing, but there's not an easy engagement to, to have with such of those uh, groups. And so there are areas like that that we continue to look at um, and may well come uh, in the future. But as we currently stand, we think um, that through our engagement approach, we're having a much more positive impact um, via ESG than we would just by blanket exclusions. Yes. Yeah, so, so, so if we take the coal as example, I mean, that sounds relatively it's clear cut why uh, that, that's under fire a lot of the time. But uh, what about the oil sector? I mean, are you more likely to engage with oil companies as they try and transition and become clean energy companies? Vast job, vast challenge that that seemingly is. Um, or, you know, could, could, you, could Alliance Trust get to a situation where it didn't invest in the oil companies or is that, is that un, unlikely? It's relatively unlikely on the basis that a number of the big oil majors are um, potentially some of the solutions for the future. A lot of them are uh, big investors in renewables. Uh, and so if you can engage appropriately um, on getting um, an evolution in the energy mix at those companies, that can actually be very positive for both financial uh, performance and the world at large. And so it's unlikely that you would just blanket um, uh, not invest in some of the big energy companies such as the oil majors. That said, you know, you can look at 
um, things like uh, oil sands uh, and the like, and some of the um, the more controversial aspects that are within that. And you can obviously um, selectively avoid those companies that are not making that transition quickly enough. That's what we want the active managers to do. That's the big a- advantage of active management over passive management. It means you don't necessarily need a blunt exclusion of an entire sector. It means that you can selectively choose the companies that are going to be part of the solution rather than part of the problem. Okay. Well, we've come back to the fund managers. It's absolutely uh, core to what you do at Alliance Trust. Um, you've got the, yeah, this, this panel of 10 uh, fund management groups, some of whom uh, may, may be familiar to our to our listeners, like uh, in the UK, Jupiter. Uh, they're not necessarily running UK portfolios, but these are UK companies, Jupiter Asset Management, River and Mercantile, Veritas. But there's, there's others on the list that might be less familiar, uh, Vulcan Value Partners. That's got quite a got an interesting name. But um, you've got the uh, 10 of them. Just uh, what do you look for in, in fund managers? I think uh, our people will be listen, interested to know. Yeah. So, I mean, ultimately, we're looking for them to have a sustainable competitive advantage uh, out there. And for this trust, we're picking um, bottom up stock pickers. And so we're asking them to just pick their uh, 20 best ideas from anywhere in the world. Think about risk um, over the long term and think about risk more in terms of you know permanent loss of capital for, rather than uh, tracking error to a benchmark or risk relative to the peer group in the short term. We can worry about those aspects in terms of how we put the managers together. So firstly, we're looking for managers that are very strong at bottom-up stock picking on a global basis uh, and can think about risk in that format and have a long-term perspective, firstly. We tend to look for um, high-quality individuals that have um, worked through multiple economic cycles and have got a good a very good long-term track record of stock picking sometimes at a large organization in the past and then they've gone and set up their own organization um uh, you know maybe 5 10 15 years ago and they're now more in control of their own investment process um uh in charge of ensuring that they don't grow so large that Um, it becomes difficult to add the value that they used to when they had a smaller amount of capital under management. So we do quite a lot of work on how sustainable is the business model? Are they um, closing? Are they likely to close the product before uh, growth becomes too much of a problem? Um, Are they managing to attract and retain high quality people uh, over time? Um, Does it generally seem uh, a high quality organization from a cultural perspective? And we do a lot of work on culture and understand the client value proposition. Uh, Are they aligned with the uh, investors um, that they serve? And similarly, the employee value proposition. So is it likely that people are going to want to stay at that organization? So a lot of that cultural work's done. And then that's a a deeper look than uh, many of our private investors would be uh, obviously able to to undertake. How long do you when the fund manager underperforms? Because, of course, they do. An active fund manager will have periods of outperformance, but can't keep that up all the time. How long do you give uh, an underperforming fund manager before you uh, uh, terminate the relationship? Yeah, I mean, this is the the classic um, investment problem, isn't it, That, that, you know, Ultimately, um, there's no right or wrong answer to that, but I can tell you what we do. So, for example, a lot of the value managers, the most 
um, oriented towards a value approach have struggled uh, over the last few years. Uh, most growth managers have outperformed quite significantly and most value managers have underperformed quite significantly. So what you're trying to do is understand why have they underperformed? Is it because they've um, called the fundamentals of the businesses that they've invested in wrongly? Or is it that they've called that correctly, but just for whatever reason, the market is just not as interested in those areas of the market that they're investing in. And so we're actually be digging into it and saying, well, what did they think would be the earnings progression in those companies? And what's it turned out to be? Um, if they've actually called those correctly, in some cases, a lot of the value managers that are in here that have underperformed have actually, um, if anything, their businesses they've invested in have done even better than they thought. They've done even better than the market, but that hasn't yet been reflected in prices. Well, then we're quite comfortable holding on to those managers. Indeed, uh, we'd be taking capital away from managers that have done very well recently and giving it to managers that have done less well recently, all other things being equal. But of course, if it's a manager that seems to have actually just called um, whether the, the, the businesses are high quality businesses that they want to invest in um, and are going to be able to recover. That's where you get more uncomfortable. So during COVID, we spent a lot of time challenging the managers on the businesses they own. Are they going to be able to get through this if it takes a long time to recover? Uh, what does the balance sheet look like on those companies? Um, what does the cash flow look like in those companies? That kind of thing. And you're right, this is very difficult for an individual investor to do. And that's one of the advantages of Alliance Trust. We kind of do that for you because we've got a team of uh, 100 researchers that are going out uh, and researching managers, asset classes around the world uh, and doing this on a day-to-day -day basis. Okay. And how do you play the, um, the, the, the fund manager style? You referred to the fact, you know, value fund managers have started to do better quite recently, but... Um, for a longer, you know, since the last financial crisis, it's really been growth fund managers who've uh, who prepared to pay up for um, fast-growing companies who, who have done a lot better. Um, you know, you're, the portfolio was always a blend of those styles. But what what, what are you doing in that, around that debate now? Do you think see the value recovery is sustainable, and are you more tilted towards value than you were before? What what are you doing? Yeah, so this is an interesting one in that it's always easy after the effect. Um, to, to say, oh, it was obvious growth managers were going to do well then, or it was obvious that the value um, reply was going to was going to happen. We don't think many people, if any, uh, are very good at calling styles in advance, um, and so we don't try to take much risk in that. So we've designed the portfolio to be pretty style neutral. We think that's a big advantage. You know, um, it should be able to do well in most kind of market environments. Um, now, um, you know, that's not to say it doesn't end up with ever such um, a slight bias one way or another, because even if you start style neutral um, at a particular point in time, um, each underlying manager will be evolving the portfolio on a day to day basis. But generally, we've kept it pretty style neutral. And so, yes, we have continued to do um, very well this year when there's been more of a reversal and value's been doing well, but it's been less because value's doing well, more because just generally fundamentals are coming through in a wider set of the index rather than just a small number of companies driving the market. It's been more that that's led to um, the tough performance in 2020 and the reversal in 2021. Okay, let's uh, move on and look, look at where the portfolio is positioned in terms of markets and, and regions. 
Um, I'm, I'm, I'm struck actually looking by uh, the, the, the allocation uh, that was in the annual report, uh, given your comment near, near the top of our beginning of our conversation, you know, China being one of the themes, the three themes that you, you highlighted, you know, how to exploit the rise of China. Um, if I look at the list of your asset allocation, your uh, geographical allocation rather, you know, North America by far the biggest at uh, nearly 58% of the portfolio. Um, followed by Europe at nearly 16%, and then Asia and emerging markets at 14%, and UK, it's a global uh, portfolio, so UK at around 10%. But um, yeah, wh where's China in all of that, uh, Craig? Yeah, so um, the starting point here uh, is that um, the benchmark is the MSCI All Country World Index. And so from a country perspective, we start with that as the neutral position. And so we're actually slightly underweight North America, for example, but that's primarily because we've got nothing in Canada, pretty much. Um, we're pretty close to uh, benchmark weight in the US. Uh, we are overweight the UK, as you said, a number of the, um, the, the stock pickers are finding value at the moment in the UK. That's not a structural bet. That's just um, they happen to be finding uh, value there, which is not surprising. The UK has underperformed um, uh, other markets for, for a while now and is obviously coming out um, of uh, COVID perhaps quicker than some with um, the, um, uh, the rollout of the vaccines uh, going quite well in, in that market. Um, China, we are actually uh, overweight relative to the index, um, but certainly my discussion was around uh, what the long-term theme is, and I, I think it's clear that that position in China is going to increase um, on average uh, over the course of the next five to ten years, um, and that's from two perspectives. I mean, firstly, um, you know, specific investments in China, and we do have uh, the likes of Baidu uh, and Alibaba in, in this portfolio as an example. But, um, but it's also going to be in terms of revenues from the, the, the companies that we're invested in outside of China. And, and that's increasingly uh, got exposure to China uh, and uh, the domestic market within China as well. Okay, so yeah, there's more exposure to China than that that list I read out would uh, would indicate. Um, that, that's fair enough. Listen, we're getting towards the uh, end of our time, uh, Craig. I just thought uh, before I move on to my sort of last topic, but just uh, maybe we'll go over. We've referred to Alliance Trust performance. Perhaps we just sort of get those figures out there. So the um, annual report showed that in 2020, uh, Alliance Trust's portfolio, the net asset value, uh, achieved a total return of 8.5%, and that was uh, below this uh, MSCI World Index of 12.7. Of, uh, but, but since you took over the portfolio in the April 2017, at that point, at the end of the year, these numbers change all the time, obviously, but uh, it was uh, sort of 41%, you 41%, um, which was Marginally, but yeah, basically in line with the exactly in line with the with the index. So, um, so that I just thought I'd get that out there so people know what, know what we've been talking about. The other aspect I wanted just to, for you to touch on, um, an important part of the sort of total return is, is dividends. So last year, you know, the, the um, Alliance Trust has now declared fifty-four consecutive years. Is that right? Fifty-four years of rising dividends. That's exactly right. Yeah, fifty-four years. So. And you're not really an income fund, particularly more of a sort of growth fund. So uh, you know, income is a bit of a sort of byproduct. But clearly, uh, shareholders like their dividends. Um, you know, there, there are a number of so-called uh, dividend heroes like yourself who've been uh, churning out these uh, consistently rising dividends. You've got uh, big reserves of uh, income, revenue reserves to 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 support that. 
which has been useful because obviously last year uh, dividend income took a big hit from uh, the pandemic and uh, the restrictions on companies to do their business. Um, what are the prospects for uh, dividends um, this year and, and, and going forward? Yes, so um, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, we think over the long term, um, we're comfortable that, you know, the portfolio that we're running will be able to produce um, uh, growing dividends from the underlying companies that can be paid out in dividends to Alliance Trust shareholders. But there are always going to be years uh, where um, income just generally from the market looks a lot lower and um, the COVID pandemic um, made 2020 exactly one of those and so what you then need is an investment trust that's got significant reserves um the alliance trust reserves were over 100 million at the time so we were able to dip in and um uh, and uh, take 10 million of uh, out of those reserves to pay out uh, a continued um increase in dividends that still leaves about 100 million in revenue reserves today but interestingly at the next agm uh, there's talk of converting uh, a merger reserve into um, uh, into distributable reserves, which would put another six hundred and forty five million pounds well, uh, in, in the reserve. <laughs> I was going to ask you about that. That's an extraordinary figure. I mean, without getting into the weeds of uh, investment trust accounting, um, you know, these distributable reserves. Why, why didn't you, um, you know, try and uh, use them before? Uh, it seems an uh, extraordinary. Uh, uh thing to uh highlight um right now and uh very useful obviously when uh income is under under pressure but uh what exactly uh is going to be going on there yeah so ultimately this is a board decision rather than us as the uh, asset manager and so they could go into more detail in it but you do have to go through various hoops to um uh through the courts to uh get the merger reserve turned into uh, distributable uh, reserves. Um, clearly, it, it's not really been a major issue because they've had quite significant revenue reserves anyway. And so, just taking 2020 as an example, if you you know you could go on another 10 years with the current revenue reserves of that kind of um, reduction in uh, income on the portfolio relative to income being paid out. Um, obviously, this now moves it to the fact that you could do that for. Um, 75 years rather than rather than 10 years um but um i think that the board are keen to just ensure that it's got that flexibility so nobody's under any uh um concern that that increasing dividend continue can continue for many years to come but from how we run the portfolio we're very comfortable that you know over the long term we'll be able to produce rising dividends from the underlying companies yeah, well, it's uh, if only the rest of investing could be quite so predictable and uncertain, that would be a, a, a quite a, a comforting thing. But um, nevertheless, that's that's where we are. Well, look, Craig, um, thanks very much uh, for talking to me um, and giving me those uh, clear explanations of uh, how you're thinking and on what you're doing. And uh, yeah, we'll look forward to uh, watching your progress for the rest of the year with uh, with interest. But in the meantime, thanks very much. Thank you. Nice to speak to you. Take the long view on your stocks and shares, ISA with J.P. Morgan Investment Trusts.